0: Give the people what they want.
1: Give the people what they want.
2: Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. Somehow I don't believe this. I don't believe that this is show 139. I'm sorry to say this, but it feels like show 239. Because we seem to have done this forever and ever and ever. In fact, I was on a program recently where I was introduced... Right after Zoe finished a segment as the other host of Give the People What They Want. Well, that's where you are. Give the people what they want. Brought to you by People's Dispatch. That's Zoe and Prashant. I'm Vijay from Globe Trotter. Show number 139. Wow. Um, coming up to 150. Remember, guys, as we come up to anniversaries, those selfies need to keep coming for us. I haven't forgotten. I know that the rest of you hate Give the People What They Want selfies. I like them. We need more of them. Sudan, five months. UN report Prashant says that the Sudan war is spiraling out of control. Millions of displaced Sudanese. Give us an update from that war.
0: Right Vijay, Sudan has, I think, uh, something we talked about very early on when this war broke out, that it risks becoming one of those conflicts, one of those wars which people begin to take for uh, granted after a period of time. So we actually see You know, far less coverage, far fewer people talking about it now than maybe some months ago. But it's important to note that it has entered its uh, fifth month and the human toll toll has been catastrophic. We're talking about, I think, 4 million people uh, who have been displaced, uh, at least 3 million of them, of course, Internally displaced, at least 1 million people approximately having to leave the country, many from cities actually because of the scale of the conflict. And uh, you know, like in many of these conflicts, which last over many, many months, what happens is that there is no aspect of life which is unaffected at this point. The health system, for instance, is drastically crumbled. We are talking about, I think, of the 89 main hospitals that Sudan has, only 18 are, prop- are functioning that too at partial capacity. And the other Uh, 71 are pretty much out of service, either because of attacks or killing or you know the wounding of medics. Our colleague Pawan has a very good story there, which actually lists the entire scope of the kind of uh, you know calamities that people of Sudan are facing at this point. And you know uh, even uh, say for instance women who are giving birth are at uh, are at risk. There are people, for instance, who are undergoing dialysis who are dying in numbers. And, you know, what is really a very horrific fact, the fact that in in many cities you have corpses actually rotting because there is there are no way to bury it. And you have resident members of various volunteer groups, local resistance committees that were in the forefront of resisting Omar al-Bashir, actually taking part in uh, digging graves to actually bury uh, these corpses. So, you know, this is the extent of... The problem that is there and I think estimates say that about 20 million people are uh, hungry and I think 6.3 million of the people are just one step away from famine. And these are you know, uh, the UN numbers which again indicate the extent of the problem. So for many of our viewers, important to remember that this fighting is essentially between uh, the Sudanese army and the rapid support forces, which is a paramilitary force. Both of these forces uh, controlling substantial amounts of Sudan's economic wealth. Both of these forces have entrenched themselves over the years through the backing of many foreign countries, through the backing of the Western powers, uh, while the people of Sudan kept saying that they should not have a say in power. But these generals were very much backed by the foreign players who, who thought that these generals would be the way out to peace and democracy. And look where this is. Uh, landed the people of Sudan at this point. And it is important to remember that these two forces are technically fighting over, you know, at this point, it's not even clear exactly what. They're just fighting to destroy each other or to reduce the amount of influence the other force has. But the people who are suffering are basically the people of Sudan. And I think, for instance, if you go to the West Darfur state, which our report points out, the, the scale of the atrocities has been even much, much more in West Darfur than many other areas. And Darfur itself has a long history of being pillaged, of being of its people being targeted by the RSS and associated militias. So very, uh, you know, very depressing anniversary, so to speak. And I think what is concerning equally is the fact that really is no roadmap uh, in terms of negotiations. Uh, there have been a, quite a few ceasefire attempts. And some of these ceasefires held for a week, three, four days, whatever. And then they collapsed because one of the parties began the attacks. And right now, it's just complete deadlock at this point, except for very vague statements that talks need to be held. So I think a, a conflict, you know, and definitely, like I said, because of the migrate, the people fleeing out of Sudan, it has already had an impact on neighboring countries. And this is likely to continue in the coming months as well. So I think very essential to keep a watch on Sudan, but also I think essential to remember that the factors that led to it were the factors which the people of Sudan, the popular movements had kept saying that this is, they had warned and these warnings were not heeded. Prashant, Sudan to Africa's
2: east toward the Horn of Africa. If you go west of Sudan, you're in Chad. If you go one country over, you're in Niger. War in Sudan Possibility of military intervention into Niger. Niger, as we already talked about on this show, has had a number of uh, challenges that it's faced in recent days. Now, this is the fourth country in the Sahel region after Burkina Faso, Guinea and Mali that's had a military coup. The military coup has brought a government in initially led by the military, now led, in fact, by a civilian. Ali Lamein Zain. Uh, Mr. Uh, Ali Lamein Zain was the Minister of Economy and Finance until the government, um, you know, from about 2002 to 2010. He is a development economist, has had a lot of experience at the Africa Development Bank. He's a civilian. Now, the problem is, because of the coup, the government that came afterwards suspended military uh, agreements with France and asked France to remove its military forces, 1500 of them, also said that they would cease selling uranium to France, very important for France's nuclear industry. They didn't say anything about the US military base in Agadez, Air Base 201. Nothing was said about that, but definitely anti-French sentiment. Since Ali Lamein Zain came in as the civilian president of this government, one would have thought that tensions would dial down, that they've said there'll be an election, there's not a military ruler, and so on. In fact, tensions remain high. ECOWAS, the Economic Community of West African States, had said initially that they condemned the coup, and so did the African Union. It's not just France and the U.S. and others that condemned this coup. African Union also condemned the coup. You see, very interesting. It's been a situation across the African continent that the uh, French and the U.S. are unlikely and unwilling to intervene with military forces of their own. We saw this in Mozambique, where France asked Rwanda to intervene on its behalf, a kind of Africanization of intervention. In the case of Niger, It's, again, unlikely that French troops will be landing, you know, in Nigeria or any of the neighboring states and crossing the borders. Very unlikely. The French don't want a direct footprint. They want somebody to intervene for them. Who will this be? This is the principal question. ECOWAS was mobilized. Standby force was prepared. For two days, (coughs) defense chiefs of ECOWAS countries met... In uh, Accra, Ghana, they met on the 17th and 18th of August. Long meetings, long days. As they were meeting in Accra to discuss whether the standby force should intervene in Niger. And in fact, what are the logistics? They were working mainly on logistics. The African Union came out and said no military intervention. That didn't mean they didn't condemn the coup. They just said no military intervention. Interesting uh, statement. Fascinatingly, the Presbyterian Church, which plays a role in this region, has also come out and said no military interventions, a very important development. But it's not just that. It's not just the African Union and Presbyterian Church. Fascinatingly, and I find this very interesting, mass protests in Senegal, mass protests in Nigeria against intervention has also cautioned the government's. Then we heard a rumor that Ghana might intervene by itself without (coughs) ECOVAS. Excuse me. This now looks unlikely. But it's a possibility. Intervention remains on the table. Um, The African continent simply doesn't need another war. I mean, there is, as I said, Chad and then Sudan. There's already a war there. If you go south beneath... um, Niger, there are a number of conflicts ongoing, including in Nigeria, on the borderlands of Nigeria. Um, This is an important issue because the governments of Burkina Faso and Mali have said that if anybody enters Niger, they will take it as an attack on their countries. This could be a broad war across the Sahel. Right now, caution seems to be of the hour. How long will France tolerate this attitude of caution? It's to be seen We are following it. People's Dispatch is running story upon story about this. Globetrotter is going to run a number of more pieces on this issue. We are following this very carefully, including trying our best to get an interview with Ali Lamein Zain. If anybody can get us that, let us know. Zoe, we're talking about conflicts in Africa. Prashant and I went through Sudan and now Niger. There are some serious different kinds of conflicts going on in South America, maybe at the ballot box, whatever it might be. But things are quite crazy in Ecuador and Argentina. Last time you told us about an assassination. What's the latest?
1: Well, yes, the two two major countries right now in South America that are uh, in the midst, in a sense, of electoral processes and have had big shocks to the system. Um, So I can start with Ecuador. As we spoke about last week, there's assassination of one of the presidential candidates, Fernando Villavicencio, days after uh, a candidate for local body um, from the citizens revolution was also assassinated. Um, There are threats and rumors going around on social media, who's next? a climate of serious fear. We've talked about this, that the levels of violence are rising. When you assassinate a presidential candidate, you get the sense that no one is safe and that if this was motivated because of their positions, then uh, naturally someone else could also face the same fate. So there's been a certain climate of, uh, of a lot of fear that has permeated, of course, um, the final end of the... Uh, kind of campaigning of these president of the general elections that are going to happen this Sunday, August 20th. Um, There are now eight candidates running for president um, and they had their final debate on Monday. I watched it. It was quite chaotic. Um, A lot of it was focused. The first section was focused on security and it seemed like the candidates were fighting for who could have a more tough on crime standpoint, because at this point with fear being the word of the hour, that is kind of the only guarantee they can give people. Um, We know in that, you know, hearing analyses from sociologists, from people who have been studying and following this, that it really has to do with the broader um, degradation of society, the degradation of social policies, of breaking down, of pushing people into the informal sector, of the boom. I mean. Petro, Gustavo Petro, president of Colombia, says that this has to do with the boom of fentanyl consumption in the United States. There's many, many factors, but what the people are seeming to want to hear is security. And that has meant that candidate Jan Topic, who we've said is a mercenary, he fought in the French Legion in the Sahel in Ukraine. um, he has shot up in the polls. And it seems to be like, it might be a direct tie between him and Luisa Gonzalez who had been previously polling ahead of the rest of the candidates. So we're going to see what happens on Sunday in Ecuador, but it does seem likely that a second round, uh, would take place. So we'll be definitely following that. And, uh, that hoping that the violence does not escalate from now till Sunday. And then on Argentina across the Andes, uh, again, very, very concerning developments that took place in the primary elections there last Sunday. Uh, We saw that uh, in these elections where people essentially vote in their different uh, electoral coalitions, um, in some senses, these coalitions use the elections to decide who's going to be the candidates of these different slates. Also, it means that all of the different parties that want to run in the elections have to get over a certain threshold, but these are not binding elections in the sense of the different parties. So, however, in these elections, Javier Millet from the far-right Liberty Advances Party took the largest vote share, and he's been a candidate that people have laughed about. He's a former tantric sex coach. He's crazy. He yells. He wants to ban abortion. He wants to ban sex education. He wants to dollarize the economy. He wants to collapse dozens of ministries. I mean, the things he's promoting and are promising to do are crazy in a sense. However, he did win the highest vote share in these elections. Um, many think that this is in response to kind of the lack of solutions and the lack of radical change really promised by the other candidates. Uh Argentina has 40% of the population living under the poverty line. Uh it had a hundred percent inflation last year. The currency has devaluated. I mean, it's, it's currently every single day it's evaluating more people are unable to use their salaries to buy their basic needs. It's a situation of despair. It's a situation of crisis and the people feel that if you're not going to offer, I mean, this is clear what this, what the results have have shown that if you're going to make few promises, Uh, negotiate with the IMF, say, well, actually, you know, we're just going to take on this debt, we're going to sacrifice, you know, servicing the people, giving them what they need, then this is kind of the response. And so from now until October, it's going to be a mad dash by the right, by the left, to figure out what to do. People are very concerned about the possibility of a Presidency. I think it will definitely go to a second round in Argentina, but from now to October, what is going to happen that remains to be seen
2: how is it that a tantric sex coach is against sex education? That's not the most puzzling thing about Javier Millet. The most puzzling thing, Zoe, is that Javier Millet promised the people extreme austerity and one in three Argentinians voted for him. That's pretty puzzling. Equally puzzling, Zoe, and I've been following this a lot, is Brazil. But we're going to come back to that in a second. You're listening to... Give the people what they want. Brought to you by People's Dispatch. That's Zoe and Prashant. The best reporting you're going to get on world news. peoplesdispatch.org I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Happy to be with you. We're almost at 150th show. Bring those selfies home. We need them. Um, Zoe, I started to talk about Brazil. I watched Ja Pedro's Steady of the Landless uh, Workers Movement march into parliament with a bunch of religious leaders Women dressed in white. Um, These are people who follow various African religions, singing, chanting and so on. I watched clips of him speaking in parliament. He was quite hilarious in his typical Ja Pedro sterile way, confronting the right wing with humor. Um, What's happening in Brazil with all these parliamentary inquiries?
1: Yes, it's been a very active week in Brazil, specifically in the Chamber of Deputies, uh, in the Congress, uh, because of these uh, parliamentary inquiry uh, commissions. And we have ex- we followed pretty extensively this session that happened against uh, the MST. This was installed in May. And as we've covered, this was really an attempt of the right wing to put pressure on the government, to put pressure on the left. They essentially called for this uh investigation that they say is an investigation um, in response to the land occupations that took place during red april which is a celebration of landless struggle of peasant struggle in honor of uh, 17 people who were massacred uh, in brazil during the land occupation uh, in the 90s and so uh, following these series of occupations um, they essentially called for this investigation to figure out the funding Who's behind the MST? Um, despite this being extremely clear, if you actually take a second to look, but really, again, it was a, it was an attempt to to put pressure on the MST, and it has been going on for a couple of months. They've pulled uh, people who have clearly and openly expressed that they do not agree with the MST, that they were part of it, and had grievances. Um, there's been so much coverage of who actually these people who are testifying against the MST, saying that they promote. Uh, unsafe practices. I mean, saying all sorts of things, um, people who say that they were uh, felt unsafe, etc. Um, the MSC has actually said on one hand, a lot of these people, there's clear cases against them. For example, movement, there are people who were accused of robbery. And these are some of the people who testified. Um, but also, uh, you know, using this hand picking of testimonies to say that, okay, and the entire 2 million person movement is bad is also methodologically uh, incorrect and so João Pedro had been summoned um, long ago to re- to testify and to respond to these right-wing senators and as you said I mean uh, members of uh, Congress it was I mean the joke on social media was that it was a it was a class it was like going to school because they would ask him a question and he would respond with Marxist theory he would respond with explaining uh, how the MST is structured its principles its vision its organizational structure I mean Going completely explaining to them the history uh, of agrarian reform, the lack of agrarian reform in Brazil, saying that the reason that the U.S. initially got ahead of uh, Brazil is also because the U.S. carried out extensive agrarian reform. I mean, for anyone who wants to hear a bit of a history lesson in seven hours, um, highly recommend checking it out. It's very, very informative. Um, I mean, the battle of opinion was clearly won by João Pedro. He even made the right-wing deputies laugh. I mean, he, his jokes were so funny and they were so on point and so intelligent um, and, and clearly showing the, the hypocrisy, the ridiculousness of these right-wing uh, members of Congress and their attacks. I mean, the, the point that we, we posted on uh, People's Dispatch about when they asked him, when they were in, questioning him about why he went to China uh, accompanying uh, President Lula as part of his trip a couple months back. Uh, and they were saying well why do you go he's saying i wanted to learn more about their their experience of agrarian reform the programs that they've done in the countryside organic production etc and they said well is there a similar movement to the mst in china and he says of course no because they carried out agrarian reform and if you want the mst to end you can just do agrarian reform and we would have uh, no more issues so that was really funny but then yesterday which I'll say very quickly, but the ongoing investigation into the January 8 acts where thousands of Bolsonaro supporters raided the capital, Brasilia, destroyed property, uh, destroyed artwork, so many uh, acts of destruction in this day, attempted to really incite a riot, incite something, a coup. Um, That has been under investigation. And yesterday, a hacker testified saying that Bolsonaro ordered him to try to hack the electoral system to spread information that the electoral system was faulty. And that if he was not successful, then he should try to expose personal conversations of the judge, Alexandre Moraes, uh, if he was not successful, but that these were direct orders from Bolsonaro given within the president's palace damning, 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 uh, testimonies. There's definitely going to be updates on that. We'll be following in people's dispatch
2: if there is agrarian reform it might help the planet that's for for absolutely certain prashant we're going to come in the last couple of um you know minutes we have talking about hawaii first give us a report prashant i heard the number 1300 people missing and so on what is going on in hawaii how do we understand this terrible spate of wildfires
0: right vijay i think uh, quite a few important aspects uh, again when you talk when often the media covers wildfires anywhere in the world, you know, it's kind of almost portrayed as something sparked, something sparked a wildfire and then, you know, acres of acres of land were destroyed. And after that, there's rebuilding, etc., etc. But if you go down into the structural issues that led to the wildfire in Hawaii, I think a lot of very important aspects, uh, you know, get revealed. And I think two or three things to highlight. One is the fact that, of course, like you said, a lot of people missing, over 100 people <clears throat> believe that and i think the number definitely is much higher because this was a number from a few days ago but i think two or three important aspects to highlight the fact that one is that this is a direct result of the kind of policies you can you can actually pretty much call them colonial policies that were imposed over decades uh in hawaii which basically privileged tourism which basically privileged plantations which basically destroyed the local uh, you know uh, wildlife I- in the region and basically set up the conditions for this kind of uh, disaster to take place and also of course there is also the question for instance of climate change as well which various you know, which which many countries in the world are experiencing but what leads to wild, i uh, say a wildfire like in hawaii and the kind of impact it has in there you need to go back like i said to the policies of decades and now we're not we're not talking about say uh, say, uh, damage that's going to cost about 5.5 billion or something, hundreds, hundreds, actually thousands of residential buildings have been demolished. And again, there's once again a question coming up with the kind of buildings that are going to be reconstructed. Are, are they even going to be affordable? What rates are they going to be built at? All of these are very important questions. There is a question of the poverty rate in Hawaii, for instance, of PP, the fact that people really struggle to even make minimum wage in a number of places. And all of this, I think, goes back to this sort of uh, colonial history that is often kind of completely uh, obscured. When we talk about Hawaii, of course, often people talk about it just, just another state in the United States. And that's very essential to sometimes, you know, the activists there push back against that, say that, you know, by doing so, you're really kind of completely obscuring that kind of a history. And it is during such disasters that this kind of a history specifically comes out, especially the fact that uh, for the two tu- to basically allow the tourism industry to sort of thrive, the kind of shortcuts that were taken, the fact that the tourism industry is still going on, even in the midst of a disaster like this. So I think a very overall, a very uh, dangerous situation there, that the extent of the disaster, we have to be very clear, is still not completely evident. The impact of this disaster will only be known in the coming years. It's going to be very expensive. To even try to rebuild and even that rebuilding considering how development has taken place in hawaii is likely to be very inequitable is likely to be focused more on uh, the commercial sectors rather than on the bulk of the people there who are already suffering from poverty suffering from exclusion so i think you know <clears throat> when we talk we talk about disasters often but the big question that comes out is what happens after a disaster how do for instance government institutions how do communities sort of you know, what are the principles on which this kind of rebuilding takes place? What are the efforts being taken to ensure that the impact of climate change can be addressed or, you know, uh, or, or even dealt with? Will any of these steps be taken or will it be back to business as usual? Or in this case, will it be back to tourism as usual? And I think that is a fundamental question that people across Hawaii, people, activists are asking, community members are asking, and they're presenting a strong demand on this.
2: Hawaii is in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Um, In recent months, there have been a spate of wildfires uh, with this prolonged heat wave that has struck, well, not just the Pacific, from the Middle East. Japan has had a very long heat wave, temperatures above 50 degrees Celsius on a regular basis. Canada, uh, not only the southern parts of Canada, which are close to the United States, but up there in the Arctic Circle, experiencing a heat wave. The World Meteorological Organization says over 600 wildfires in Canada, mass evacuation order in the town of Yellowknife in the Northwest uh, Territories of, of, of Canada. British Columbia, town of Lytton, had a record temperature of 42.2 degrees Celsius. I mean, it's extremely hot for that part of the world. Um, on the other side, Hurricane Hillary. Uh, is expanding, going to strike the coast of Baja, California, hit southwest United States. Um, They expect about 150 to 160 millimeters of water, um, rainwater coming off that hurricane. The World Meteorological Organization in all of this has produced a very important report, which I was reading last night, called State of the Climate in Southwest Pacific 2022. It's about... Um, Their data from last year. Well, what they show is that there is increased because of this disruptive weather, there is increased marine heat waves. That's their word. And coral bleaching. I've talked in this show before about coral bleaching. Um, The coral reefs of the South Pacific have been bleached largely because of heated water. And this has an enormous impact on marine wildlife. Um, The IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, had released a very important report a few years ago about species extinction. The section on marine wildlife is chilling. It has a lot to do with the water temperatures uh, going up. Well, the WMO, this World Meteorological Organization report, shows that sea level rates will rise in that region in the South Pacific faster than the global rate. Um, rising at about four millimeters per year. Um, Global warming or ocean warming is going to contribute 40% to the observed sea rise um, because of the thermal expansion of seawater. You know, as water heats up, it's going to take up more room. Um, They point out in this report, the impact on agriculture is going to be enormous. I mean, food production is going to be ruined um, as a consequence of this. It's a very chilling report about sea level rise in the, um, in the South Pacific region. Highly recommend uh, having a look at that report. Um, you know, at give the people what they want. We bring you the world as best as we can. Today's show was interesting because we started on the African continent. We had two wars, one a war ongoing for five months in Sudan, the other a war potential in Niger where there's a potential escalation. Um, next week, uh, Tricontinental is going to release a red alert document on the situation in Niger. I hope very much people circulate it. We, we are journalists, but we also care very much about people. We very much care uh, that war and climate change and things like that have solutions. Go back and listen to Ja Pedro Stadil's uh, conversation in the parliament. You can show that there are still rational people in the world wherewith give the people what they want brought to you from people's dispatch zoe and prashant i'm vijay from globetrotter really great to be with you and don't forget selfies see you next week